What causes poverty? This year, three economists have won the Nobel Prize in economics for their work into the causes of poverty, including only the second ever female winner. The Royal Swedish Academy of Sciences has today decided to award the Sveriges Riksbank Prize in Economic Sciences in memory of Alfred Nobel for 2019, jointly to Abhijit Banerjee, Esther Duflo, and Michael Kramer for their experimental approach to alleviating global poverty. I am Pradeep Pariyar and you are listening Neptune Pod. What does poverty actually mean beyond simply having a low income? How does it affect different age, sex, ethnicity and caste differently? It's perhaps the most important question in economics and one of the hardest. Today, we are going to go beyond thinking about poverty just in terms of income and take a look at how researchers around the world are trying to measure poverty in all the ways it affects the poorest in our communities. We'll draw multiple perspectives from three different experts. Sharon Bessel is a professor at the Australian National University and the ANU lead of the Individual Deprivation Major IDM project. Christopher Hoy, he has worked as an economist for over a decade with a range of organizations, including the World Bank, Asian Development Bank, UNICEF, and the Overseas Development Institute, ODI. Sharon and Christopher are with me in the studio. So welcome, Sharon and Christopher. Hi, Pradeep. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Thanks for having me. And Ramesh Shunam, he is assistant professor at Wasida University in Tokyo. He joins us online. Hello and welcome, Ramesh. Thank you, Pradeep, uh, for your invitation. So, Sharon, let's start with you. What does it mean to experience poverty and what's the current scenario of global poverty? Well, I think there are many different ways of answering that question. What we have seen in terms of income poverty over the past 15 years or so is a decline in the number of people who are assessed as being in income poverty or extreme poverty. So that's a decrease in the number of people around the world living on less than $1.90 a day. And $1.90 a day is the current international poverty line that's set by the World Bank. So that's a good news story in terms of the decrease in extreme poverty. We've seen some shifts in the nature of poverty, but also the locations of poverty around the world. So we now see more poor people or people in extreme poverty living in middle-income countries than in low-income countries. So that's been a shift um, and perhaps points to some of the issues around inequality that are emerging in middle-income countries particularly. But while we have that good news story, we also have you know, a very large number of people living in extreme poverty. But if we look at, for example, multidimensional poverty, we can see that there are still many people living in situations where they're not only income poor, but they're also poor in terms of access to health or to education. There's been some really interesting work done recently um, by the people at OFI, at the Oxford Poverty and Human Development Initiative. And they're the people that run the global MPI, the global multidimensional poverty index. And they've done some disaggregation based on age. And what that work is showing is the very high number of children who are living in multidimensional poverty. And their work shows that the younger the child, um, the more likelihood of them living in poverty. And of course, part of that is around the, the, the age profiles 
in middle-income and low-income countries, but it also points to the particular vulnerability of children, and that's something that we need to pay much more attention to globally. Christopher, Saron pointed out that there are a very large number of people living in poverty, and as we all know, sustainable development goal one is to end poverty in all its form everywhere. How does the Global Multidimensional Poverty Index help to reduce poverty in all its forms? The Multidimensional Poverty Index illustrates that poverty is more than just about money. And that's exactly what we also see reflected in the Sustainable Development Goals as well, whereby there are 17 different themes of which monetary poverty is just one of the 17 themes. So while the multidimensional poverty index looks at education and health, as well as living standards, not just money, but broader, such as about the housing that people have, the sustainable development goals go even further, looking at issues like conflict or water consumption or inequality. So we can think of the multidimensional poverty index as a step from the monetary measure of poverty towards the all-encompassing vision of development that was reflected in the Sustainable Development Goals. Unfortunately, measuring something doesn't necessarily solve uh, the issue, uh, but it is a first step. So a saying that I always like to tell people is that measuring a pig or weighing a pig does not make it any fatter, right? That, so in a similar idea, multidimensional poverty index provides us with a way of seeing where people are poor and in what ways they're poor, but simply measuring it is not going to solve poverty. But what we hope is that by measuring poverty in a broader way, so that it's not just about money, but also includes health and education and living standards, we're able to better direct resources towards issues where people are needing them most. Sharon, what aspects of poverty should be addressed in order to measure poverty in a more comprehensive and inclusive way? I think there are three things that, that we need to do. One is to measure at the individual level because that enables us to be able to see which social groups are, are experiencing poverty in different ways. The second issue is to be much more gender sensitive than we are and to recognise that poverty plays out differently for women and men and to be able to measure that um, and to be able to then base our responses on evidence rather than assumptions of the way in which gender plays out. Um, and the third thing that I think is very important is to measure both material and non-material poverty. Now, if we, if we begin to measure both material and non-material poverty, that does make our task much more complex. So I would suggest that there is always going to be a role for income-based measures of poverty. You know, that's a way of assessing poverty in a broad sense that is helpful. In, in being able to broadly assess whether poverty is going up or down, 
where poverty is most concentrated. But in order to respond to poverty, we need a much greater understanding and we need to understand the way in which patterns of social exclusion and social inclusion, the way in which um, social relationships, the way in which violence or the ability to have some level of control over your life, we need to understand the way in which those things play out. We need to understand how shame and stigma act as barriers to people being able to move out of poverty or to take advantage of opportunities that may exist. We need to understand how to create opportunities. So in order to respond to poverty rather than just measure, I think we need to think about the, the non-material dimensions as well as the material dimensions. So individual level, gender sensitivity and material and non-material assessment are the three things that I would suggest we need. Well, Ramis, as Sharon said, we need to carefully about three important things while assessing poverty, that is gender sensitivity, individual level measurement, and both material and non-material measurement. You often argue that besides age, sex, race, and ethnicity, caste is also one of the factors that influences the poverty measurement in developing countries, especially in South Asia. What is the evidence that caste still matters as a determinant of opportunity today, and what might its mechanisms be? Uh, look, Pradeep, before talking about caste, uh, I think we have to put uh, caste uh, in context. If you look at uh, South Asia, particularly India, there are 200 million, uh, you know, lower caste, the so-called lower caste people, which are also called Dalits uh, in India and Nepal. You know, and also in Nepal, there are about 5 million uh, Dalits that uh, represent um, about 13% of the total population. And in, in India, about 16% of the total population uh, is Dalits. So uh, it's also not only important regionally, also globally, this is an important figure. If you compare uh, the total population of uh, Dalits in India with the Australian population, Dalit population in India is uh, eight times higher than the total Australian population. Uh, so, uh, in terms of quantitative uh, numbers, um, this is also significant. And uh, uh, when you talk about uh, caste and poverty, we have to uh, consider uh, uh, the uh, incidences of poverty among different castes. For example, in Nepal, uh, if you look at uh, 100, the so-called upper caste people, you will find only 15 poor people. But when you look at uh, 100 Dalits, you'll find 40 poor people. So you can see the disparity, uh, not only in terms of poverty figure. Uh, if you look at uh, you know, the representation in uh, politics, uh, bureaucracy, or in businesses, uh, you'll find a similar pattern of the disparity. So you can uh, ask a question, why is it the case? It's not because the Dalits, uh, they don't want to improve their uh, status of poverty or they don't want to engage uh, themselves in businesses or, or, or generate um, a lot of incomes to improve their uh, livelihoods. It's not the case. They also want to improve their economic status. They don't want to live in poverty and uh, marginalization. Uh, but uh, uh, you have to put the context of caste um, into historical uh, context because uh, the so-called lower caste people, the Dalits, they have long been excluded from uh, education, uh, politics, uh, and overall you know, decision-making process uh, of the state. So, uh, for example, 
they were denied uh, education. That means uh, they were not able to gain employment uh, in the public service uh, sector or in businesses or in other companies. That means uh, they couldn't generate lots of income uh, to improve their situation. And they were also uh, denied uh, access to land. Land is still important, but it was more important in the past because it was uh, uh, the only one source of livelihoods for farmers um, uh, in South Asia, in Nepal and India. They were denied access to land. That means that they were struggling uh, uh, to survive because they didn't have their own land. They had to work for other people. And uh, because of the lack of access to land, they have been facing uh, what we can call uh, generational poverty. And it, uh, it is the same case uh, in terms of uh, their representation in public service and politics. And more importantly, the status of poverty of Dalits, you can relate it to caste-based discrimination because of their lower social position within the caste hierarchy. And if you are a Dalit, you may not be able to uh, establish businesses. If you run a restaurant or food-related business, you may not get customers because uh, uh, you are called untouchable. So anything tossed by uh, the untouchables may not be acceptable to people from uh, the so-called upper caste. So you may not get customers. That means your businesses may go bankrupt. So how can you um, generate uh, and improve your economic status in this context? Caste uh, uh, still matters uh, in the context of, uh, of South Asia. And uh, also, as I said before, 200 million Dalits uh, in India and about 5 million Dalits uh, in Nepal. Also globally, this is a significant number. And, and when you talk about poverty, uh, we can't uh, undermine the significance of caste. Should the global poverty measurement agenda pay attention to identities and relations of caste? Uh, a very good question, Pradeep. When we assess poverty, there are different social identities which uh, should be uh, taken into consideration. The question of uh, gender, ethnicity, geography, and caste. Because uh, when we look at these identities from the perspective of intersectionalities, because these different social identities, they interact with each other, uh, they interact or they intersect with each other to produce poverty and vulnerability. Particularly in the context of South Asia, if we exclude caste uh, from the measurement of poverty, we'll be missing an important dimension of poverty because uh, caste defines almost every social and economic relation in South Asia. So it is very vital that uh, we consider the dimension of caste uh, while assessing poverty. So Sharon Ramesh argues that global poverty measurement agenda pay attention to identities and relations of caste. With respect to this, what are the main limitations of the multidimensional poverty index, MPI? So I, I would begin to answer that by saying I think the multidimensional poverty index has many, many benefits. And it really has changed the way we think globally um, about poverty and the way we measure. So I'd start by saying I think it's incredibly important that we recognise just how significant that work has been and continues to be. Um, in terms of the limitations, I think the major limitation of the MPI as it currently is, is that it uses existing data. Now, using existing data has its benefits because the data are available and so there are fewer costs 
than collecting primary data. Um, but one of the problems of using existing data is that we're also constrained by those data. And one of the things that our work in the individual deprivation measure has showed is that a lot of data that we already have that are already collected are collected at the household level. Um, they're not asking questions that are necessarily sensitive to, for example, gender. And if we are going to have a full picture of poverty, we really need to understand how gender plays out and how poverty may be different for women and for men and for boys and girls. So I do think the MPI, for all its benefits, does have this constraint of using existing data. A lot of the data that they use um, are household level data. So they have been able to individualise um, by trying to do some statistical work with the data they have. But a lot of the data is, is based at the household level. So I think that is a constraint. And I would argue that there are things that we need to measure, particularly around the non-material dimensions of poverty, that the MPI doesn't. So the, they're the, the major constraints or limitations that I would see of the MPI. But I would recognise very clearly the value of the MPI and how it's pushed us forward in terms of poverty measurement. Um, and it does tell us important things that income doesn't. But there are some fairly important things that the MPI misses. So Ramis, why is caste so often off the agenda and treated differently from age, sex, ethnicity or religion? Pradeep, you may know well that uh, the measurement poverty is a, a very, very political process. And uh, people, decision makers, politicians who are in power, who make uh, decisions, um, they are mostly from uh, the so-called upper caste people. So they define the agenda of poverty and uh, they decide which indicators should be included in the measurement of poverty and which indicators should be dropped. So given the unequal power license, uh, generally um, policymakers, um, they tend to ignore the, uh, the, the dimension of caste for political reasons uh, in different contexts. So uh, in the most part, the Dalits or the people from the lower caste, uh, they are less powerful and they can't influence the agenda and the indicators of uh, poverty. Uh, I think things are improving, uh, but I think that there is a much more to be done to uh, really integrate uh, the question of caste uh, while measuring uh, poverty. And I think uh, it is uh, off the agenda now, but I think uh, uh, its significance uh, has been realized by policymakers and politicians and also by the uh, international actors uh, or development institutions. So I think uh, it will um, be included uh, in the future uh, uh, endeavors uh, to measure poverty uh, in South Asia. Christopher, how is the multidimensional poverty index useful in monitoring the sustainable development goals emphasis on leaving no one behind? That's a great question. The leaving no one behind concept is a simple way of conceptualizing what we would all like to see, a world whereby no one is left in dire circumstances. And the multidimensional poverty index provides us with a way of making sure that we don't think that, oh, people have overcome monetary poverty and therefore they are perfectly able to pursue all that life has to offer. Uh, instead, the multidimensional poverty index highlights that maybe someone might have enough income uh, to be out of, say, extreme poverty but there is, don't have high levels of health care. Maybe there's no school for their kids to go to, or maybe they are relying on very 
poor, say, cooking fuels, for example, such as using manure as a way of cooking their food as opposed to better options like gas um, or coal. And as a result, the multidimensional poverty index provides us with an illustration of how some people are being left behind in ways that aren't just money. Uh, that would be the connection that I see uh, between this idea of the multidimensional poverty index and leaving no one behind. Is the global multidimensional poverty index sufficient to align with the sustainable development goals? How could the multidimensional poverty index be revised to better align with the sustainable development goals? Oh, wow, that's the big question. Uh, the multidimensional poverty index is a first step. First step towards trying to broaden the way we conceptualize poverty so that it's not just about money. It's about other aspects like health and education and people's living standards in general. But the sustainable development goals are so much more. They include things like conflict, partnership between countries, environmental outcomes such as water consumption, uh, as well as use of, say, fisheries, you know, forestry, you know, much more broader concepts than what we actually see in the, uh, the multidimensional poverty index. The question is, is it possible to broaden the multidimensional poverty index in a way to uh, be able to fully capture the sustainable development goals? I think that that would be very challenging to do. We don't have data available and a lot of these issues, such as, say, inequality, that's not something which you necessarily can measure in a household level or an individual level. You know, this is talking about broader sort of levels of your units of analysis, whereby we think about communities or countries or even globally. Similarly, you can think of, say, conflict. Conflict isn't a... a goal that we can easily reduce to this household, do they have a lot of conflict or that household, do they have less conflict? So as a result, it would be very, very challenging to integrate the sustainable development goals fully into the multidimensional poverty index. But that's not necessarily a problem as well. The multidimensional poverty index serves a purpose and is a step in the right direction. So finally, Saron, as you mentioned earlier, measuring poverty at the level of household often ignores the gender sensitivity within the household level. How could the individual deprivation measure could help to measure poverty at individual level? How it differs from the existing measure of multidimensional poverty? So there are a couple of things around the individual deprivation measure that make it unique and particularly make it sensitive to gender. So one of, the, one of the issues is that in the individual deprivation measure and the survey that is attached to it, we ask a number of questions that are specific to women. So, for example, for women who have pre are pregnant or have been pregnant in the last 12 months, we ask them whether they were able to access antenatal care. So this really matters in terms of um, maternal health, child health, and, and is important in, in terms of addressing maternal mortality, which remains at such high levels in so many countries that it's scandalous. So we need to know whether women are able to access antenatal care. So we ask those questions, even though those questions are only applicable for women. We also ask women, because again, this is only applicable to women, whether during their last menstruation period, they were able to access sanitary products. Now, this really matters. And in the participatory 
research that underpinned the individual deprivation measure, women talked about the fact that um, often they were not able to afford sanitary products. So this has enormous implications for whether they're able to go into public, whether they're able to work, it's their quality of life during their periods. We recently did um, an IDM study in Indonesia, and we found that almost 12% of women said that during their last period, they were not able to access sanitary products. Now, that's one in 10 women who were not able to use sanitary products during their menstruation. I mean, if it was one in 10 men that once a month had to cope with this issue, I think this would be a global goal. <laughs> Um, so for the first time, we're starting to get data around this and to reveal the importance of what in some countries is starting to be called period poverty, the fact that this really impacts on women's lives. So there's some examples of the way in which the IDM tries to be particularly sensitive to the issues that matter to women and may lead to poverty having a greater or a specific impact on their lives. We also, we have a, an individual survey that we use um, to as part of the, the IDM. And we survey every member of the household. So the way we've approached this to date is to randomly select households and then to, to survey every member um, who's age 16 and above within that household. So by surveying at the individual level, we're able to establish whether there are differences within the household. But it also means that rather than having household level data and trying to deconstruct that to calculate whether there are differences within the household, we can build up from the individual and identify whether there are particular social groups that are experiencing poverty in greater depth or in particular ways. So starting by surveying individuals really matters in terms of the understanding that we have um, around the way poverty plays out and it matters for the way we respond. And it matters not just for understanding women's poverty. It also matters for understanding in detail the way in which poverty plays out for men and for different men, depending on whether they've got a disability or across the life course. So we're starting to get a very rich picture within the IDM of the way in which gender, age, disability, geographic location plays out for people. And so we're no longer bound by the household, but we can see the way in which poverty impacts on different social groups. So that matters in terms of the way we respond to poverty, because we can see where the barriers really are to particular groups moving out of poverty. Um, and that takes us beyond the household to a much richer understanding. Thank you, Saron, Ramesh and Christopher for your time. Thank you so much, Pradeep. It's been great to talk to you. Thanks, Pradeep. It's uh, nice talking with you. It's a pleasure to be able to speak to you about these issues. And these are issues that hopefully will be able to attract greater global attention going forward so that we can actually see a world where no one's left behind and poverty is ended in all its forms.